morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reform. We're going to dismiss uh, uh, ch- uh, parents with young children that want to take them to a children's church. Um, it's an avenue and a, a way that we help prepare them to return and participate more fully. It's, it's also one of the ways we fulfill the promises we made in the service that we will assist parents in, in, their, uh, in their parenting duties. We've been working through a book of the Bible called Nehemiah. It's an Old Testament book. Sometimes it can feel uh, a little bit obscure as it speaks to people in a far-off land and a faraway time. Um, and that may feel particularly so today. Uh, today we'll be looking at a passage in Nehemiah chapter 11 that deals with where people live. I should say where people lived. Where people lived two and a half millennia ago and in, in another part of the world. And that might seem at first distant or even abstract, but I'd like to encourage you that as we move through this passage today, we're going to be dealing with some of the very most profound things we have to deal with in our lives, such as where you live, where you work, where you worship, and that perhaps through the sneaky back door of uh, Old Testament living arrangements, God will be able to speak to us about some of the most important spiritual things going on. If you want a little help imagining better what uh, Jerusalem was like in the days of Nehemiah, we do have a little uh, photocopy over here by the book table. You can uh, look at that, grab it, take it with you, and and stir your own thinking about a a land long ago far away. It's in galaxy, but uh, it can feel very distant. Uh, You'll notice also as we read the passage for today, some large sections of names are going to be in italics. We won't read them. They're there for you to read on your own, Um, but we'll keep our our reading together a little shorter. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. And then continuing in verse 20. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were all in the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple, temple servants lived on Ophel and Zehah and Gishpah were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, the son of Hajabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers was every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages, with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kariath Arba, in its villages, and in Debon, in its villages, and in Jek- uh, Jekabzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Moladah, and in Beth Pelet, and in Hazar Shual, in Beersheba, and its villages, in Ziklag, in Mekonah, and its villages, in En Rimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, in Zanoah, Adulam, 
and their villages, Lachish in its field, and Ezekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel and its villages, Enathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazar, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nabalat, Lod, and Anon the valley of craftsmen, and certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, as I promised, it's a uh, bunch of people living in places most of us haven't heard of. And as I was reading through the names of all of the villages, I found myself thinking maybe I should have put more of this in italics because uh, I don't know where they are. Uh, you might find them on a map, an ancient map, a recreation. Um, but they feel distant to us. They were important to Nehemiah in his time, though. And from that, we draw important principles we can apply to our lives. I'd like to draw your attention particularly to verses 1 and 2 because it describes something that's very important in the book of Nehemiah overall. In verse 1, it says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. What proceeds from there is a list of where people live. Some who lived in Jerusalem, some who lived outward. Whether the people lived in the city or in the villages, they were important. They were important to Nehemiah. But what we see in these verses is something I'd like to focus on today. And that was the necessity of moving. There were people at the beginning of the story who lived all around Jerusalem. You might remember, if you've been with us through the summer, that after we concluded the first half of Nehemiah, the part in which Nehemiah helped to rebuild the city, there was a little bit of a down note, a little bit of a problem note that, that was recorded in the book. And we see that on page 8, your additional scriptures. Nehemiah 7.4 said, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So we were left at the end of that first part of Nehemiah with sort of a problem condition. The walls of the city had been rebuilt, but there weren't people inside them. And so we moved through a section of uh, restoration, of reformation, covenant renewal, where the people recommit themselves to God. And they conclude in the very last verse of chapter 10 by saying, we will rebuild the house of God. And then we see here in this section, the necessity of people moving to Jerusalem so that they could be around the house of God. The temple or the house of God was in Jerusalem, but there was no one there. The walls had been built, but the city was empty. And so the solution is they will have two things. Some people will volunteer and others will cast lots. They agreed to say, we're going to put our name in the hat and one out of ten of us will go back. I'd like to put before you today the reality that that move for them was hard. Moving is hard. You know this personally in your own life. Some of you have had hard moves. I think of a move I did when I was 20 years old. I, I did two years of college at a school south of Pittsburgh called Washington and Jefferson. And after two years, I had made a mess of my life. Uh, I was uh, part of a lifestyle that was unhealthy. I was uh, uh, in a place where my friends were unhealthy. I wasn't doing well academically, and I was paying too much to not know what I wanted to do with my life. So I left and I ended up being convinced to transfer. I went to a, a large state school. I, I went to Penn State. 
Uh, and after uh, uh, two years of college, I wasn't really a freshman, but I wasn't really part of the system. The first year after my transfer was one of the harder years of my life. It was certainly one of the harder moves I've done. I have vivid memories of uh, waking up on a Saturday morning alone in a room by myself and realizing I am really alone here. And I had a fight for my life just to stay active and engaged. It was a hard move. Uh, partway through the first year, thankfully, I became connected with a number of other students that were uh, on a, a bicycle club and uh, at, through that found a place to live with friends and people and it really helped a lot. But those, those months of being alone were hard. I share this story for two reasons. First of all, to remind you that even as we speak, people are moving to our part of the city from all over. Some of them are doing hard moves. They're going to be landing here in Oakland, right around our church, coming from all over the country and, and all over the state and even all over the world. As a church, we're committed to serving people who come to Oakland because of their commitment to uh, higher education, because of their commitment to pursuing a medical career. The hospitals and universities draw people in and they land here alone. It's a hard move. But I also share the story because I think we can underestimate the difficulty of what the people are doing in this passage. Moving is hard. Some of you have done it and you know it. But I, I think we can have a certain bias, a, a modern bias, that when we look at the story, we think, well, that wouldn't have been hard for them. These ancient people had a very simple life. I would suggest to you this move is harder for them than moves you've done. These are primarily agricultural people. They were farmers, they had vineyards, they had sheep. Moving from their established home and their established farm in the villages around Jerusalem meant relocating, it meant building a new house. Remember Nehemiah 7 said there were no houses yet built, or very few. It meant starting a new field, a new vineyard, moving your flocks. And for a people whose lives were enmeshed in social networks of kin and family where responsibilities were shared, assistance was given. Even a, a move of a couple miles meant a near complete social dislocation. This was a big deal and it was a hard move. Today I'd like to consider three things as we look at the passage. First of all, we're going to try and understand why they needed to move. And I would argue that this isn't just an incidental little note, right, just two verses, but it actually is part of a, a really big theme in this book. That's why we're focusing on it. It's a big deal in the text. Uh, secondly, we're going to say, what principle can we draw from that two and a half millennia ago on the other side of the cross in another part of the world in a very different culture? What principle can we bring to our lives here? How do we apply it? And then third, we're just going to ask, how, how does this affect me personally? Because I think it can be very helpful and even challenging personally. So, first of all, as we look at the passage, why did they move? As we said before, the point of, uh, of what's happening in this whole book is the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was the capital city of the people of Israel. Uh, the descendants of Abraham, whose grandson, Jacob, was renamed Israel. They had lived in this land for years, but their their rebellion against God caused them to be taken into exile. Then, through God's gracious work, they were restored to the land. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell of how people returned 
from exile in Babylon and began to rebuild. But at the beginning of this book, there was a problem. The city was vulnerable. The walls had been broken down. And so even though there was a temple, it wasn't a viable place for people to live. The reason Jerusalem was so important was not only was it the capital city, but it was also the center of their religious worship. The people of Israel were fundamentally a people who not only had a land, but who had a special relationship to God through their covenant. And that was expressed primarily in and around the temple. So the location of people in this story is really important. It's central to everything that's happening in what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. We see that in some of the other sections that we read today. We're reminded by some of the language that the temple was the center of worship and the center of sacrifice. We read about the overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem in chapter 22. How Uzai, the son of Bani, uh, and, and, uh, had uh, charge over the work of the house of God. We're reminded that in that temple, the sacrifices were made, the sacrifices for sin that meant all of God's people could be confident that they could come into God's presence. In the temple itself, the, the presence of God was found in a special way. God could be known in the temple. And that's why so many of the parts of, of the Old Testament, particularly the, the Psalms, speak lovingly of the city of Jerusalem, of, of Mount Zion, of the place where they would meet God. It was here that sacrifices were made. It was here that the, uh, the trained professionals guided them in worship. We read in verse 23 about a provision that was fixed, that is food and money, or food and resources, for the singers. That every day those who devoted themselves to the worship of God's people were being cared for. That was happening in Jerusalem, was happening in conjunction with the temple. And finally, as we remember this book of Nehemiah, we remember that just a couple chapters earlier, the words of God, that the scriptures were read to the people and it brought renewal. But they were read by the Levites and they were explained by the Levites. The, the words of God that he had given through the prophets were shared and explained by these people, the priests and the Levites, associated with Jerusalem in and out of the temple. And so the, the viability of Jerusalem was directly tied to the viability of the temple and of the religious life, the faithfulness of God's people. If Jerusalem was a thriving city, then it was possible for them to be thriving in their expression of worship in the temple. But if Jerusalem was barren, if it was vulnerable, if there were no people there to come and to assist in the worship, then the worship of people throughout the whole area would have been at risk and at jeopardy. That's really what's going on here in the background. And we want to pause and remember that God's purposes for his people in and through Jerusalem were not for them alone. God made them for himself, for his own glory and his own purposes. But God's purpose here was bigger than them. It was so that all the people, all the peoples on earth, all the nations and tribes would come to know God. You may remember when God first called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he not only promised him a land and a, a special relationship, but he said, you will be a blessing to all nations. All nations will be made aware of who I am by what you're doing here in Jerusalem. We see glances of that in the prophetic books. For instance, in the book of 
Isaiah. We read this in our call to worship. This great vision of a day that would come in the last days when God would be known to all peoples and they would say, let us come to the house of the Lord, to the mountain of of the Lord, to the house of God. In that picture, Isaiah is picturing these peoples from all places coming, so to speak, to Jerusalem to know God, to learn his law, to worship, and to grow in faith. It was bigger than even them, bigger than Jerusalem, bigger than Israel. It was for all people. And so this is the backdrop of what's going on, and it's against this backdrop that some people had to move. They they had to move because something bigger than themselves was going on. And and again, I want to remind you, this was no small thing. Some of these people had just come back from Babylon within uh, a couple of years or a couple decades. They had been slowly by hand building houses of stone in the sparse timber that was found in the region. They had been by hand uh, cultivating grapes, caring for sheep, cultivating uh, crops. And now they were going to move. It was no small thing. But Nehemiah, as as a gifted leader as he was, was able to help them to see what they were doing as part of a bigger story. It was part of a bigger mission. The second thing we want to do today is think about how that principle applies to us. We don't live in a day and age in which God makes himself known through a temple. We don't center our lives anymore as followers of Jesus Christ around a particular city. But instead, on the other side of Jesus, on the other side of the cross, the inward movements of the Old Testament, where the nations come into into Mount Zion to know God, are reversed. The the theme and the pattern of the New Testament, instead of going inward to Jerusalem, starts into Jerusalem and goes outwards to the nations. But the principle at hand is the same. The goal of God's people on the other side of Jesus Christ, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, is the same goal that God gave to Abraham in the beginning. That all nations and all people would know God. But now, instead of bringing people in, the people of God go out. And so Jesus, when he uh, meets with his followers for the last time, meets with them in Jerusalem or at the Mount of Olives, right, uh, just right across a small valley... And he he says, you're going to go from here to Samaria. You're going to go outward to the other parts of Judea. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. And this is recorded for us as a commission. A commission in the Gospel of Matthew, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said these famous words. Uh, Christians through the ages have recognized the gravity, and they've called this the Great Commission. It's found in your bulletin and our... uh, Uh, reading that we'll do after the sermon today Matthew chapter 28 Jesus says all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me having been raised from the dead he is on his way to be seated at the right hand of God in power he has power over every name and every authority and every people on earth he is now in the position of ultimate authority and he says therefore go you see this outward movement the Old Testament is come, right? This, this now empowered by the Spirit, the people of God go. They go outward to the ends of the earth. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, all groups of people, 
all families, all tongues, all tribes, all subcultures, all groups of people throughout the world and all countries. Let's go. The principle, once we move through that lens, though, can be held. Because what's seen so instantly when we look at that command, go, is the recognition that sometimes going means literally going and moving. Just as in Nehemiah's time people moved for their mission, so too the church of Jesus Christ following this great commission, he gives us a mission, we move. We move in different ways. I'd like to think briefly about what some of them can be very practically for us. As a church, we've said over the past year that we're really doubling our efforts throughout this past year to remember our worldwide mission. A sense that we are part of something so much bigger than our city and our country. If you were to go to the table on the far side of of our room here, you would see a map of the world and little pins showing people we support all over the world. Sometimes it means, quite literally, people go to the ends of the earth. Some of you today are thinking and praying about a a move that would take you to another culture, another language, another continent. As a church, we're committed to supporting people. We're committed to short-term trips that that come in partnership with Christians working overseas. This winter, we'll be taking medical and other people from our church to Ethiopia as part of a ministry that supports there. We think of the ends of the earth, but we also recognize going means sometimes relocating even more closely to ourselves. As a church, we've been committed to the idea of church planting. Some of you who've been here long enough can remember 10 or 12 years ago as we helped to launch our own church plant, a group of 20 people coming to the front of the sanctuary. Most of them didn't move their house, but they moved their church, their place of worship. Since then, we've supported other church plants, other new churches starting in our region. We're currently partnering in Jeanette and the South Hills. And from time to time, church planters come in and some people go out. And we send them with prayer because it's part of the mission. But third and finally, uh, going to the ends of the earth for some of us means staying. We're here in Oakland, a part of the ends of the earth. And ministry in this area we found to be a, a place of importance, but a great place that's not easy. The, the mission of our church is possible because for the last 15 plus years, people have gone to Oakland. Sometimes uh, shifting the place that they live, often driving from outside of Oakland to be here and worship. Uh, for 15 years, people have come to set up and tear down. Uh, people have driven sometimes a couple miles sometimes dozens of miles or more they've fought for parking they've found new places we've struggled to stay in venues for long periods of time there's a sacrifice involved in being here and I hold that before you today because for some of you who might live or work or study just a couple of blocks away this is an easy move but our church exists because others come and it's not easy for them And perhaps God is calling you to join with us in our part of the mission here as we worship in this place, reaching people from the ends of the earth that are in Oakland. We invite you to join with us and continue to join with us in that mission. 
But those are the, the two first things I wanted to talk about. Their call to move, our call to move in all its various forms. But I'd like to close, and the third thing I'd like to do is just ask you to think personally about this. And, and I recognize as I do it, that is uh, personal. And it, it can feel like it's getting in your business a little bit. But let me ask you this question today. As people who, in the course of your life, make big decisions about where you live, where you work, where you go to church, how does the mission of God reflect those decisions? How, how do you make your choices about where you live and where you worship and where you work in view of God's great purpose of, of going to the ends of the earth, including Oakland, with the good news of Jesus Christ? Let me be practical, as practical as I can be as I think about it. Um, when I was younger, my father was good at helping make decisions. Whenever he'd make a big life, life decision like this, he would walk me through a cost-benefit analysis. He would sometimes draw it in his legal pad, and he would help me think, well, what's going on here? And it would look something like this, a hand-drawn, you know, a cost and benefit. And you would think, uh, all right, I'm going to make a decision. Uh, we need a new house. Uh, we're going to move. Uh, what are the costs? What are the benefits? As Christians, God doesn't drop us a message from heaven about where to live, where to go to church, or where to work. We sometimes wish he would just send us a text message and tell us what to do, but we are called to be wise and to invest and to think of all of the many things going on as we make decisions. The challenge I have today for you is to ask how God's mission fits into your cost-benefit analysis. The end result is not going to be the same for each of us. We have so many different factors, so many different gifts, so many different places God is calling us. Some of us have jobs that we have been, we feel called and directed into, and they take so much of our time and our energy, and it affects everything else that we do. Some of us find the difficulties and challenges of ministry shift and shape us. Some of us find the demands of our family, our responsibilities to parents and to children shaping us. All these things are in there. My question is, does God's mission factor in? Again, I'm not saying we all arrive at the same conclusion. It would be tempting for me to say everyone should move to Oakland. We all can't move to Oakland. We all are called to different things in different places. It'd be tempting for me to say that because I'm so committed to how important the mission of our church is, everyone should come and worship here. But God has other churches and other places and other people, and they're faithfully following him. My question is, how does the mission factor in? The results will be between, or between you and God, ultimately. But over the years, I've found as a pastor that very often when people shift to the big decisions of their lives, they adopt a perspective that excludes God's mission. I think we're shaped to do this. The world around us teaches us to do it. The people who talk about all of these decisions in our lives, they teach us to think about our homes purely and exclusively in terms of how it affects me. When we think of a new home, we, we think properly and necessarily about the square footage and the size of the yard and the school district and the retail value. And as a faithful steward of God's resources, we must. We also think about God's kingdom. You think about where he, he's calling you to worship, who he's calling you to serve, and how your place there affects the neighbors around you and the schools in which you attend. By God's grace, 
He can strengthen us and equip us and help us to balance the many calls. We won't all do it the same way. We face different challenges. Over the years, I've seen many occasions where people seem to make the big life decisions without reference to the big mission of God. And so I put that before you today. I I recognize that as you begin to think about it, where do I live, where do I work, where do I worship, it's something that can make you feel somewhat insecure. Perhaps you feel guilty for where you live, or perhaps you feel ashamed of where you live, or maybe you feel the pressures of really big decisions weighing in on you and it feels like everything's in the air. Let me close today by reminding you of how this story, how our stories relate to the story of Jesus. Because when we start to think about this theme of home and worship and place, we are moving, whether we realize it or not, to the center of the gospel story. The Christian faith begins with the story of God himself drawing near to us. And Christmas every year, Christians celebrate what we call the incarnation. It's the story of salvation that begins with the Son of God who was for all eternity in the throne room of heaven, intimately in fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit. God the Son took on human flesh and he dwelled among us, Gospel of John says. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, becoming a servant. Jesus came down from heaven and lived among us. The Nicene Creed, this old statement of faith in the church, says it beautifully this way. It says, for us and for our salvation he came down. We sang about this in our opening song today. Jesus running towards us. He did it at great cost to himself. Jesus grew up in a small, poor village in a a place where he was deprived of many comforts. Jesus himself, in the height of his ministry for three years, moved as an itinerant preacher and described himself as a man without a home. Let us not forget that Jesus became homeless for our sake. Jesus then giving himself for us a perfect life, a death in our place, offers forgiveness of sins and promises us an eternal home in heaven. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his his disciples, with his closest friends for a last time, and he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I am going away, but I will prepare a place for you. I will prepare a room for you, a location for you, and I will come back to get you that you may be with me forever. Friends, wherever you live now, you are preparing for an eternal home of glory. You are in Jesus. And and we say that to put all of our decisions in perspective. You are being prepared for an eternal home that Jesus has prepared for you. Third and finally, Jesus calls us to enter in his mission. That's That's what he said to his disciples when he left. He says, go. He's not saying go because there's some great burden of guilt or shame. He's not asking them to operate out of this system of obligation that maybe if they sacrifice enough or do it right or figure out the matrix of cost-benefit perfectly, then God will love them. He says, I've prepared good works for you from the beginning of the world. And I'm inviting you to enter in. 
For some of you, that invitation could mean a physical move to another place. Perhaps, and I, I know some of you, as you wrestle with this today, it's God calling you to another city, to another country. Jesus is inviting you into his work. Some of you, God is calling and inviting you to stay, to invest. And maybe here your investment is with us. And for some of you, that investment may come with sacrifice. Sacrifice of driving. The sacrifice of inconvenience. The sacrifice of thinking differently about where we live and how we live. Friends, Jesus is inviting you into his great mission. What a privilege we have walk with him, to walk in the good works before us. I I don't know how you need to resolve these things. The last thing I want you to think is judging these things. Jesus is inviting us. Inviting us into something with eternal and lasting ramifications. To go to the ends of the earth. To stay in some cases here at the ends of the earth. And to see his purposes fulfilled. Let's pray together.